Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of the World of Sharks podcast. You guys know the drill by now. This is a podcast all about sharks, rays and their underwater habitat brought to you by the Save Our Seas Foundation. I'm your host Isla. I'm a scientist and a science communicator for the Save Our Seas Foundation and I love talking about sharks which is a very good thing because my job is to interview experts in shark and ray science, conservation, education and storytelling to take you on a deep dive into a different part of the wonderful world of sharks. This week we are zooming in to find out just how much we can learn from shark DNA and we are very lucky to have an amazing expert to walk us through the field of shark genetics and genomics, Professor Mahmoud Shivji. Mahmoud is a professor of marine science at Nova Southeastern University's Oceanographic Center in Florida. And he is also the director of the Guy Harvey Research Institute and Save Our Seas Foundation Shark Research Center. He leads both the research and education programs of the Shark Research Center, which specializes in taking integrative, multidisciplinary approaches to research and conservation. That includes combining state-of-the-art genetic techniques, genomics, and fieldwork to better inform conservation management strategies for endangered species of shark and ray across the world. Mahmoud is a world-leading geneticist who is behind some very important discoveries that have been made in the last two decades relating to shark and ray science and their conservation. For example, his pioneering research developing rapid DNA forensic methods to identify shark body parts is still being used by the US and other national fisheries management agencies to reduce the illegal fishing of threatened species of sharks. He was also part of the first research team to sequence the entire genome of the white shark and more recently this year, the entire genomes of both the shortfin mako and the great hammerhead. Don't worry, we will explain what all of that means in this episode. And this episode also has something for everybody. So if you know absolutely nothing about DNA, about genes, genomes, genome sequencing, we break down all of these concepts Well, I say we, Mahmoud breaks down all of these concepts. And if you're like me and you kind of know a little thing or two about genetics from school or from university, we dive a little bit deeper into the research of Mahmoud and his team and discuss kind of what this means from a conservation perspective. It's got a little bit of something for everybody. So without further ado, grab your lab coats and let's dive in to our episode. Hello, Mahmoud Shivji, and welcome to the World of Sharks podcast. Oh, thank you, Ayla. It's, it's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for coming on. I'm very, very glad that we are able to do this. I know how busy you are, and we very much appreciate the time that you're taking to walk, well, walk me through, not just the listeners, walk me through the very fascinating but also incredibly complicated world of shark genetics but we have the perfect person to lead us through here so I'm very very excited to have you on but before we dive in to those questions we have some 
I hope, slightly easier ones, just to warm us up a little bit. And we like to start the podcast with the same question for every single guest. And I know it's quite hard when you've been working, you know, in the marine space for most of your life to pick out an experience that, you know, stands out among the rest. But is there a experience that you have had with the ocean or adjacent to the ocean that stands out for you as most memorable? Well, I have been working in the marine environment for a long time, as you mentioned, Isla, and there have been a few such occasions. Um, but, you know, I, I think my first such standout memory goes back to when I was about 20 years old and working as a research assistant in what at the time was a very isolated place on the west coast of Vancouver Island in Canada. And we had a team of six people. uh, And one day, just for fun, we decided to go diving on a shipwreck that was really quite far away from our research lab. And it took us uh, about four hours to get to the shipwreck in our uh, really small inflatable boats. They were about five meters in size. Um, And that journey was an adventure in itself, given how far we had to go across choppy seas to get to the shipwreck. And on the way there, we encountered a lot of gray whales and even had one whale breach in between uh, our two boats, uh, which was just quite a sight. But but really, that wasn't the most memorable experience, uh, uh, you know, to top it all off when we got to the shipwreck and, and, and dove in. Uh, that's when I had my first mind-boggling diving experience. Um, uh, and the visibility was pretty good. Actually, it was very good, uh, if I recall. And you could see the wreck from the surface down to about 30 meters. And as we, as we, as we went down, as we descended, we were surrounded by hundreds, you know, many hundreds of, of small sharks um, called spiny dogfish. And it was like it was like descending through a cloud of sharks, and 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 these these sharks kept on bumping into us, and then into the divers, and then turning away, the whole way down uh, as we descended onto the wreck. And it wasn't an aggressive behavior at all. It was just like you know we were in the sharks' way. And amazingly, once we got to the top of the wreck, there were no sharks there. So they all stayed just right above the wreck. And, and, and so we had descended to this cloud of sharks. And then we get to a place on the wreck where there are no sharks. But if you look up, there were these hundreds of sharks the whole time. And that experience is something I'll never forget. Like I can still picture it. And unfortunately, in those days, underwater cameras were huge and very expensive. No GoPros. Uh, and so no one had a camera with them. And so we, we didn't record any of this, but it's, it's you know, made an indelible impression on my brain. And I, I still think about that, that uh, sometimes. It was really, it was, a, it was an incredibly memorable experience. Yeah, yeah, I, I can completely see why that stands out in your mind. That's, that's absolutely incredible. And one of the things that I've always wanted to see are, you know, the very similar thing that, you know, we might, we're going to come on to a little bit later on, but there's the scalloped hammerhead aggregations uh, in the eastern tropical Pacific that look very similar to that. So like you dive down, you know, fairly deep and you look up and there's just a whole ceiling of sharks going overhead. But, you know, as as a cold water diver, to think of that with spiny dogfish is is very very cool and very exciting and that's that's now on my list of things to see um but you 
you know, you credit your fascination and your love of nature and the sea to growing up somewhere that's, you know, very far away from Vancouver Island in Kenya. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your childhood and how that early connection to the ocean formed? My family lived on a, on a small hillside uh, overlooking an inlet on the island of, of Mombasa, which is uh, the very, very southern uh, coast of Kenya. And as kids, we would go to the inlet and swim and play in the ocean quite a lot. It was just something that, you know, we did. In fact, you know, we didn't have television in those days. And well, no, that's not quite right. There was television. It was just that my family didn't have a television. And so we just played outside a lot. And the surface there uh, uh, of the ocean was also mangrove habitat. And so we would see all kinds of marine wildlife. But we were just kids. We were just playing. And I wasn't really thinking about wildlife per se, but I'm sure that those early experiences had something to do with developing my fascination with marine biology and, 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 and you know marine organisms. Now, interestingly enough, for, for university, I didn't start off studying biology or marine biology. I started off studying economics uh, for first degree. Then it turned out that we had to take a science class uh, as a requirement, you know, just for an economics degree. And I took a biology class and I just found the material fascinating. And so I think the combination of my childhood experiences playing in the ocean and seeing lots of amazing ocean life and then becoming aware of biology as a formal discipline later sort of all came together in my brain and sent me off in the direction of, of marine biology. <laughs> and you were like, this is the one for me. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it um, uh, not that I didn't like economics, I actually did, but I, I just remember being so amazed and fascinated by learning about biology of a wide diversity of things in, 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 in that first class. I <laughs> and then how, how did that lead you, or how did you get into shark science then? Ah, well, <laughs> my involvement in shark science was completely serendipitous. You know, even though I had that experience with, with all those spiny dogfish and diving and that, 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 that amazing experience there, I was really never thinking about doing anything with sharks. I, I started my position as, as, a, as a professor um, here at Nova Southeastern University's uh, Oceanographic Center, uh, which is still the university where, I'm, where I am currently. And because it was an oceanographic center, I, you know, I had to work on ocean-related topics. Um, and, but I was trained as a geneticist also. Uh, so I was looking to combine marine biology and genetics together. And in those days, very few people were doing DNA research on marine species, uh, although now it's quite quite a big field. And the connection to sharks specifically, or shark research for me, occurred when I was uh, reading the local newspaper. And I saw an article that U.S. fishery managers were having trouble identifying shark body parts that were being brought to port by fishing vessels, you know. Um, you know and by body parts, I mean, uh, you know, certainly fins, as well as carcasses that, you know, where there's no head or tail or fins were all taken off. And they, call them, they call them logs. And they were having trouble identifying them because many of the fish species uh, looked very similar to each other. You know, things like silky sharks and dusky sharks and black tip sharks and Caribbean reef sharks. These are all sharks in the genus Carcharhinus and have very subtle morphological distinctions. So you really have to know what to look for to tell them apart. 
And then when you take the fins off and the head off and the tail off, then it becomes even more difficult. And because of that, that difficulty of identifying these, these body parts, fishery managers could not keep track of how many sharks of each species were being actually brought to port or being landed. And I read about all this in the newspaper, in the local newspaper, uh, that the fisheries managers needed data, needed those identification data to keep track of how many of each species were being killed uh, so they could properly manage the fisheries. Now, I, ha I wasn't thinking about sharks really, but as a geneticist, I thought, oh, well, hey, I can solve that problem simply by looking at the DNA of these shark body parts um, to identify species. And, um, and so I contacted the, uh, the, the, uh, the management agency, some scientists of the management agency, um, and asked them to send me samples from sharks that they, they, you know, they knew the identification of, and they were very kind, and they did that. And I started working on developing these rapid genetic methods to identify shark species just from a small piece of meat or fin using, using their DNA. Uh, and that worked out uh, quite well. And, and that sort of genetics angle, the genetics pathway, led to my entry into the shark research world. So completely unexpected. Um, and I can thank a, a newspaper article in the local, in the local press. But what was it, so excuse the pun here, um, but what was it about genetics that kind of hooked you in? That was really entirely the fault of my academic mentor. Uh, his name was Professor Michael Neuschel. When I was a master's uh, degree student um, at the University of California in, in Santa Barbara, and, and really I, I, was, I was in his lab and I, I was studying uh, ecology, kelp bed ecology actually, and uh, and Professor Neuschel tried right from the start. I remember this distinctly uh, to try to convince me to include genetics into my research, but I resisted. I just you know didn't know much about genetics, and I I just wanted to be a field ecologist. But you know it, it was only at the very end of my time as a master's student that I finally understood the power of genetic technologies to dig into the very core of understanding biological function, you know, regardless of species. So all thanks to, to my former professor for steering me to a field that is, has now just exploded with mind-boggling technology and, and, and discoveries. Um, and, you know, I mean, fun, a geneticist can work on any species, right, from bacteria to humans to fruit flies to um, elephants and whales or anything, or to coconut trees. And of course, sharks. <laughs> so it's a it's a versatile field and an incredibly exciting field nowadays with these amazing technological innovations that are coming out with, with for for DNA sequencing. Mm, it must be it must be a, a super exciting field to be part of and to have seen flourish as well because it kind of really is. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but it kind of really is in the last decade or last two decades that it's sort of really, you know, taken off and there's been a lot of advancements in, to the field. And I, I like it as well that you said <laughs> when you first started to describe how you got into the field of genetics, you said it was the fault, <laughs> the fault of the supervisor. <laughs> Not thanks to him, it's his fault. Very wise, wise chap. <laughs> 
he had real vision. I mean, he, he saw the future, you know, long before uh, and, and tried to steer me into it long before it became popular to, to do genetics. Yeah. Okay, so before we fully plunge ourselves into the waters of genome sequencing and DNA sequencing, I wanted to take us right back to the basics of genetics because I say basics, there's nothing basic about this field, but there might be people listening who we we are going to go into a lot of terminology like we're already talking about DNA, about genes, we're going to be talking about sequencing and I wanted to just kind of rewind a little bit and explain what some of these concepts are because there might be some people listening who have either never heard of it before or who, like me, have, you know, remember these terms vaguely from school or university but never actually went on to study them and don't know them as in-depth as you do. So... I wondered if we could go right back to this start and kind of begin with DNA. So I've always imagined, or if I remember correctly, I always think of DNA as the basic instructions for every living thing. So kind of, you know, if you imagine that you're a piece of flat pack furniture and DNA are the instructions that basically dictate what you're going to look like, how your body functions, um, and then genetics in a very simplistic sense is basically learning how to read these instructions and figuring out how these instructions have led to the actual complete living thing that is in front of us right now. Have I got that right or am I completely butchering your field <laughs> you, you're, you're exactly correct it's 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 the basic instructions of how life works um, and these instructions are coded for in in, 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 the, in the in DNA and then also how those particular traits are passed on from one generation to another uh, so yeah that, that, that is genetics and then of course with the shock research center, the, the DNA that, that you're looking at and that your research team are focusing on comes from sharks. And I was interested to know kind of what kinds of things can we learn from a shark's DNA? I just find it so fascinating because obviously we can't, we can't see DNA with our naked eye. We can obviously see the products of it, but we can learn so much from it. So what, what can the shark's DNA tell us? Okay, so uh, shark DNA. I mean, DNA, whether it's in whether it's a shark or a coconut tree or a fruit fly, is, is still very a very simple molecule, right? It's, most people will remember that it's just um, uh, these DNA is made up of these four bases, uh, 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 you know, the A's, T's, C's, and G's, and it's long strings of these things. Now, the DNA in an organism, whether it's a shark or anything else, um, is made up of many different uh, sections or different segments, uh, some of which, um, it's all just DNA, A, T, C's, and G's, but some of those sections uh, are actually genes. But a lot of the DNA in an organism is made of sequences that control the expression of those genes. So they're not genes themselves, but they control how those genes are, are, are expressed and what proteins are produced. 
Now, these DNA sequences can tell us many, many things that underlie biological function, regardless of species. Now, I know we happen to work on sharks, but the principles are the same. And so the, and the genetic technologies used are the same, uh, whether you know, one is studying humans or one is studying sharks. Now, a lot of the technology with DNA has been driven by human medicine. And, uh, and, and for humans, the main driver of DNA sequencing-based genetics research is understanding the causes, the inheritance, and treatments of human diseases. And this business, this human genetics business, is a massive, is now a massive industry. But, you know, DNA sequences are also used to study human ancestry, historical migration patterns, and in, and in crime forensics, you know, where solving crimes using DNA is now a routine practice. And there's lots and lots of TV shows about this stuff. Uh, now, for sharks, and actually all wildlife, analysis of DNA is used to discover many different aspects of their biology, some of which are directly related to conservation. So for example, at, at the Save Seas Foundation Shark Research Center, we use DNA analysis for identifying different shark populations across their range. You know, some shark species have global ranges, and this is really important for uh, conserving different genetic stocks of sharks. Uh, we use DNA for getting information on shark migration patterns. Many of these sharks travel huge distances. Uh, we use DNA analysis in shark forensics, uh, such as identifying shark species from very tiny amounts of their body parts in commercial markets, as I explained earlier, uh, to see if the sharks being sold are, are from legal to catch species or endangered and protected species. Uh, we use DNA for estimating shark population sizes uh, from their DNA. We use DNA for understanding shark behavior in terms of their mating systems. Um, you know, for example, we were the first ones to show that female sharks have this amazing biological property of being able to produce progeny, you know, babies, uh, by parthenogenesis you know, or, or virgin birth. Uh, so that is without the eggs of a female shark needing to be fertilized by sperm from a male shark. That was really big news when we when we published uh, that discovery. Nowadays, we're we are also using DNA analysis to to sequence the entire genetic makeup of sharks, uh, their genomes, to understand what makes them these amazing biological animals, um, organisms, really that that they are. So, fundamentally, DNA is being used uh, by us, and we've been in this business for quite a long time. Uh, but now many, many other researchers that are studying sharks. Yeah, yeah there's, there's so much to learn and we're kind of going to explore some of those questions in more detail um, in, in just a little bit, kind of looking at some of the you know big publications that the Research Centre have published, even just this year, um, to kind of illustrate your points there. Um, and one of the biggest achievements from this year that your research team were able to do was to sequence the entire genome for two endangered species of shark, the shortfin mako and the great hammerhead. Um, this was work led by yourself and Michael Stanhope from Cornell University. And you, like, as I said, you managed to sequence the entire genome. So we just described there what the sequencing of DNA is. But what are we referring to when we say, you know, a whole genome for a species 
Right. So uh, a whole genome uh, is 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 basically uh, the entire genetic content of an organism. It's very simple. I mean, you, you take all the DNA in, in a species, that's called the genome. And the genomes of all species, including sharks, is made up of DNA. So when you sequence the genome, it just means obtaining the, 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 the linear order of the four, these four basic building blocks or the four DNA bases, you know, the A, T, C's, and G's that make up the, the, the DNA content of the entire genome, of the, all, all the DNA content um, um, in, in an organism. Now, getting the DNA sequence of the whole genome, you know, genomes tend to be very large, uh, entails multiple steps. And the use of still, you know, pretty expensive DNA sequencing equipment. Uh, although, luckily, the the sequencing cost per DNA base is coming down really fast as the the, the chemistry, the sequencing chemistry, and and the machines, sequencing machines get better and 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 better. Now, as far as shark genomes go, what is interesting uh, is that many sharks have genomes that are at the higher end of the size scale among vertebrates. For example, uh, we found that the genome of the shortfin mako that we sequenced recently, that, that, that you mentioned, is a little more than 1.6 times larger than the size of the human genome. The great hammerhead genome, on the other hand, is a little bit smaller than the human genome. And, you know, these are things we weren't expecting, but that's what the, the genome sequencing told us. Now, the bigger the genome, the more sequencing it requires. And so the cost of getting a shark's entire genome, especially big things like big genomes like makos and white sharks, uh, is unfortunately higher than, say, sequencing a human genome, at least, at least for now. Uh, just because there's just so much more DNA to sequence in in, in, these, in many of these sharks. Yeah, so it's kind of like if we go back to a kind of like instructions analogy, it's like if you're sequencing just if you're sequencing DNA, you're kind of looking at the individual instructions themselves, whereas sequencing an entire genome is basically like getting the whole manual and trying to put that together from the beginning. That's a perfect analogy. In fact, if you don't mind, I'd like to use that next time I talk to somebody about this. <laughs> <laughs> you can you can use you can use that if you want just uh, just quote me <laughs> cite me um yeah no but i just I, that's that's the kind of the way that my mind visualizes it and i can imagine um you know people kind of they've they've got the human manual and then someone hands them the short film maker one and it's just you know so much heavier and you're like oh my goodness that's gonna take me quite a long time to decipher it's like almost like building, you know, the world's biggest flat pack furniture, <laughs> trying to decipher it in a foreign language. You know, what did you, what did you learn from, you know, sequencing the genomes of those species? And what does that mean from a conservation perspective? So, um, okay, so, so, you know, we, we sequenced the genomes of, um, of the great hammerhead and, and short maker shark recently, we published that earlier this year. But the first shark genome we sequenced was that of a white shark. And we published that in 2019. We discovered that not only are white shark genomes, um, you know, also about one and a half times the size of a human genome, so big again, but it also showed that white sharks have some amazing genetic adaptations for keeping their genomes stable. 
Now, what is genome stability, right? It's it's a sort of a, it's a bit of a well, stable. You know, stable just means things that is is is, is not changing very much. Um, and genome stability it turns out is actually a good thing in an evolutionary sense, in that what it means is that white sharks uh, having these properties of having a stable genome means that they are less susceptible to the many diseases, you know, such as cancers and neurodegenerative diseases that occur when genomes are unstable. Unstable genomes simply means that a lot of mutations that are occurring. So stable genomes means there's less mutations occurring. Now, in, in addition to finding that white sharks um, have pretty stable genomes, we found that the DNA sequences of, of genes in white sharks that are known to be involved in wound healing, the white shark genes involved in human in, in healing, in wound healing, are, are also very efficient. They function in a very efficient manner. In, in a way, that, that was very interesting because, you know, all shark biologists that work in the field will tell you that sharks can heal from wounds really, really quickly. And, you know, part of it makes sense is as an adaptation because, you know, when sharks mate, you know, males grab onto females and they don't have hands to do it with and they use their teeth and, and you know, shark teeth leave huge wounds in, 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 in female sharks during mating season. And when you look at these fresh wounds, you sort of wonder how these females even survive, but they heal really fast. So there is an underlying genetic mechanism that is allowing them to heal really fast. And we found the genetic mechanisms uh, by sequencing the genome of the white shark. So, you know, that was our first foray into the world of deciphering shark genomes and looking deeply into their biology on the basis of their entire genomes. So really, we cut our teeth, really, if you will, on, on, on the white shark in terms of genome sequencing. Uh, we learned a lot, we made a lot of mistakes, but we also, you know, figured out how to do it by, by, by the end. And then by the technology of sequencing had, had improved also, and then we, we sequenced the genomes of the great, great hammerhead and, and, and the shortfin mako for the first time, which we then published early, early this year. And in terms of like the, the shortfin mako and the great hammerhead genome, I know that we, you know, learn all that fascinating stuff about white sharks and their abilities to, to heal from, from injury. Um, did we learn anything similar about the hammerhead and about the mako from their genomes. Right. So for the for the hammerhead and mako, we we did not so far haven't looked at the the genome stability and wound healing aspects. We focus our attention more on on conservation aspects because ultimately, you know, our, our funding is large largely comes um, to do conservation research. But you know, once you have those genomes then you can dig into them at, at a variety of different levels to answer all kinds of questions. Uh, for, for the great hammerhead and the short field mako genome, so in addition to, in addition to just providing a, a, these really high-resolution chromosomal-level genome characterizations, you know, so now anybody can take that and dig more into them and, and find more things. But, uh, but a big part of what we did with these genomes is, was we we looked at some conservation genetic aspects like the, the conservation genetic status of great hammerhead and shortfin mako uh, compared to other endangered species uh, of all kinds, you know, like pangolins and tigers and wolves, etc. 
whose genomes have also been sequenced. Uh, so we wanted to see how the genomes of, of the great hammerhead, which is critically endangered, according to IUCN Red List, and the Mako, short field Mako, which is endangered, compared to genomes of these other land endangered species. And what, what we found from, from this, this particular viewpoint, conservation viewpoint, was, was both optimistic and pessimistic, depending on, well, depending on the species. For example, genomes reflect the, the current genetic status of species. And what we found in the great hammerhead genome were these really long stretches of DNA, DNA sequence that had very, very low genetic variation, surprisingly low genetic variation, and, and overall very low genetic diversity across the whole genome. Uh, in fact, a great hammerhead genetic diversity across the whole genome was one of the lowest compared to even endangered land animals. And from the, from the genomes, um, from the genome sequences, we also found evidence of very high levels of, of um, recent inbreeding. And that's, inbreeding is never a good thing when it comes to biological fitness and adaptability to changing environments. And really, a lot of inbreeding makes species more susceptible to extinction. And we found that signal in the genome of the great hammerhead. But optimistically, <laughs> Uh, the genome of the short-finned mako reflected much more uh, standing genetic variation and very, very little indication of recent inbreeding, which really means that their population sizes are large enough to prevent inbreeding, which is a very good sign for the conservation status of short-finned makos. Mm, interesting. And this, this very much links us on to... Another piece of research that I wanted to discuss with you, which was led by Sydney Harned, but you were involved also in, you know, the research team, um, which looked at the iconic aggregations of the critically endangered scalloped hammerhead in the eastern tropical Pacific, the ones that we were talking about right at the beginning of the podcast, you know, that ceiling of sharks. And, you know, this we'll we'll put links to all of these papers and all these publications in the show notes so people can go and read them there'll also be links to you know our articles that we've written about them that kind of break them down a little bit more um, and they cover so many different aspects and there's lots of things to discuss with these papers you know we need an entire other podcast episode for that but one thing that that paper also touches on is the genetic health and how it actually showed that the population in the eastern tropical pacific had a higher genetic diversity than other populations that are found around the world and i wanted to dive into that in a little bit more detail is this this concept of genetic diversity and you know why that's so important to understand when it comes to things like a species genetic status and what that could possibly mean for how they will you know, how they will cope with different environmental conditions. You know, why Why is diversity, genetic diversity, why is that important? And why is a low gen genetic diversity a bad, you know, quote unquote, a bad thing? So so a really a fundamental principle in, in, in biology um, is, is that high genetic diversity in a species is a very important property when it comes to survival, when it comes to, to the, the, the adaptability of the species, 
to changing environmental conditions. And, you know, we have environmental conditions with climate change in particular are, are changing very, very quickly. And genetic diversity or having, having genetic diversity allows a selection for on, on, on specific genetic groups within the species to accommodate changes in the environment, to be able to adapt to those changes and survive. And also having high genetic diversity uh, reduces the chances of, of, of inbreeding like we found in, in, in the Great Hammerhead. If you don't have much genetic diversity, and this is not just for sharks, this across to, uh, applies across all, all life forms, it reduces the chances of the species being able to adapt to changes, environmental changes that, that are going on. So in the world of conservation, trying to maintain high genetic diversity in, in species is a really, really important um, endeavor. So having management plans that will maintain high genetic diversity is, is a, a big goal of, of conservation. But you know, you have to know, first of all, you have to know what kind of genetic diversity there is or there isn't. Now with scalloped hammerheads, you know, there's these, again, these iconic animals that are actually, their fins are, are very highly valued in the fin trade, unfortunately. In the Eastern tropical Pacific in particular, there is a huge amount of overfishing that's going on. Um, it's called IUU fishing, illegal, unreported, and unregulated fishing. And, and scalp hammerheads are captured quite a lot there. And so it's certainly been a huge concern that uh, this overfishing is, is reducing population sizes to the point where there is very low genetic diversity left um, in, in, in this species in that part of the world. So we compared, uh, you know, my, my, my former student, Sidney Harnett, compared the genetic diversity in scalp hammerheads from the Eastern Tropical Pacific to scalp hammerheads from other parts of the world. And we were really expecting to find very low genetic diversity in Eastern Tropical Pacific scalp hammerheads compared to other places. But actually, much to our surprise, it was the opposite, which is really a relief. And so that means that with more conservation efforts of scalloped hammerheads in the eastern tropical Pacific, you know, including reductions in fishing, it's a big thing, the scalloped hammerheads in this region have a better chance of, of uh, uh, bouncing back um, uh, and adapting to environmental changes that are rapidly occurring. So that was a good news sort of study, really, a good news discovery, I should say, uh, from that study. Which is nice because, you know, we we've got to cling on to all of the you know the positives that we find and all of the the good news that we find because they can it can feel a little bit like there's just bad news constantly all the time and so it, it is good to to hold on to these things um and I guess just to go back to diversity just so that I have I have it straight in my brain so it's it's almost like um so if you have a higher genetic diversity, there's more chance of you having a gene that will allow you to adapt to different conditions. Is that is that correct? So it means that the population in general, there's more chance of individuals in that population surviving and being able to then breed and pass on those, uh, those important genes um, that will allow the species to adapt. In the future that's that's exactly correct um so so when you have genetic diversity um and and say you have uh you know some some uh, unforeseen change in the environment that that 
um, kills off a, a bunch of individuals in that species um, uh, because those individuals uh, simply don't have the genetic makeup to to survive those changes. But there are other, if you have genetic diversity, there are other individuals of that species that have the genes that allow them to adapt to those changes that are going on. And so, as, as you just mentioned, those individuals will then pass on, they will breed, uh, and then pass on those genes to, to their progeny, which will allow them to survive in, in, under those particular conditions. So, yes, so having genetic diversity is of critical importance in adaptability and therefore survival of, of species across the board. Not just, not just sharks. It, it just amazes me how much we can gain from looking at something, you know, you, you mentioned, a, you know, a relatively simple molecule that is just the building blocks of life. And there's just so much that we can, we can, learn learn from that and are still learning you know th th this is a a really rapidly advancing field with new techniques and methodologies coming up all the time and being discovered and being developed and I was interested to get your take on if there's anything you know in relation to sharks because this is a shark podcast um and you know it goes you've said many times throughout this is that you know anything that you can say about shark dna can be applied you know to to species all over the world but is there anything that you're particularly excited to see develop um you know uh the answer to that is yes and i'll, I'll tell you that that the um that technological, and I mentioned this earlier, the technological innovations in DNA sequencing together with all the computational analytical methods being developed for making biological sense out of this, these huge volumes of DNA sequences being generated nowadays because of all these incredible machines, makes it a really exciting time to be involved in, in, uh, in our case, in shark uh, genomics. You know, genetics, DNA underlies how all life functions. And now getting all of this sort of really high resolution, highly detailed information about DNA at the level of sort of whole genomes uh, is allowing us, uh, you know, in, in addition to understanding how, you know, in, in this case, sharks actually work, because, you know, as scientists, we're also interested in basic biology, how, how organisms work. But also, from a conservation perspective, um, all this genomics information is telling us, like we find out with the short mako and the great hammerhead, which species need to be prioritized for more conservation efforts. Um, and so genomics is, um, in addition to just basic biological information, is also a great new tool and approach to, to help guide conservation efforts. And so this is a really exciting time. And the technology is just getting better and better really fast. Yeah, it's very, very exciting. And yes, I mean, an hour has gone by so quickly and I'm so thankful to you, Mahmoud, for, you know, breaking down a very, you know, very big and there's there's so many 
difficult concepts within this field to you know we've just scratched the surface of of the the different routes we could go down and on this podcast we probably will go down some of those tangents in different episodes and explore these concepts more but as an overview this has been absolutely fantastic and i am i'm so grateful for your time and for your knowledge and your expertise um I, I say this on every episode, but I could honestly talk to my guests all day and just continue to pick your brains and ask you lots of questions, but <laughs> I'll not do that. Um, but we've talked about all of this, you know, very interesting and very, you know, deep science. And now I almost feel bad asking you this final question, which is a very, well, some people do find it profound, but it's, it's a very surface level and a very fun question that we just like to end the podcast with. Uh, and that is, if you could be any species of shark, ray, skate or chimera in the world, what would you be and why? And we've had to add chimera to that after having so many deep sea specialists on <laughs> in the past so <laughs> right oh gosh you know um I, i'll go with sharks because that's what we study for the most part um we i mean we we, we study lots of different species uh, not just at the at the genetics and genomics level but also we we do a lot of other sort of ecology work where we look at migration patterns and and I would have to say that if I had to choose one, I would probably go with the shortfin mako. And uh, my reasoning for that is partly because I've been diving with them and I see, you know, they're, 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 they're like torpedoes. They, they, they look like torpedoes. They've got this incredibly pointed nose, um, huge eyes. They can swim enormously fast. They make these incredible leaps out of the water. Um, they're a, uh, an impressive, impressive, uh, high-performance animal, and um, and their genetics uh, seems to be you know pretty good so far. Anyway. <laughs> so I think uh, I'd, I'd go with Jordan Mako. <laughs> you can pin your bets on the winning team. <laughs> Right. <laughs> and they, they are. I mean, that's not the only reason they are an extremely cool species. And, and, and yeah, they can move fast. They can travel, you know, great distances and go deep and go shallow. Yeah, I think short for Mako is a very, very good answer. Yeah, I would like to be a short for Mako too. Yeah, yeah, and not to forget, good, and good genetics, very important. <laughs> <laughs> good genetics, yeah. I'll have to think about that moving forwards now with my answers. Um, but Mahmoud, thank you so, so much for taking the time to come onto our podcast. We, we very much appreciate it. And it's been so much fun i feel like i feel like an hour went very fast that was a that was a whole whirlwind of genetics and interesting and fascinating stuff ah uh, well thank you isla it was it was great uh, chatting with you and hopefully the i was able to make the genetics parts a little more understandable and interesting absolutely <laughs> so. absolutely well, yeah thank you yeah uh, thank you and just like that, it's the end of the episode. And I think it's definitely fair to say that we learned what we can learn from a shark's DNA. Thank you so much to Professor Shivji for taking time out of his busy schedule. 
and for all of his knowledge and wisdom we very much appreciate it and as always you can find links to everything we discussed in this episode in the show notes on the world of sharks website if you like this episode please be sure to rate review and subscribe if you haven't done so already it really means a lot to us and it also helps more people to find us and find out how amazing sharks are and who doesn't want that this was a podcast brought to you by the save our seas foundation my name is isla i produce and host the podcast our amazing visuals are by jamie silver Our lovely logo is by Nicola Poulos and the wonderful jingle you can hear right now is by David Knight. If you would like to find out more about the Save Our Seas Foundation, you can do so by heading to www.saveourseas.com or on social media. We are at Save Our Seas on Twitter and at Save Our Seas Foundation on Instagram. And thank you at home for listening. I hope you have a jawsome two weeks and we will see you next time.